To a summer edition of Lost in Science, where we are taking a break from bringing our own stories and getting our friends at Laboratory to let us tell their stories. Laboratory is where scientists and science enthusiasts come and talk about their favourite scientists. On the show this week, we have Edward Brelsford, who is an engineer and teacher and mathematician, uh, who's going to be talking about a little-known Swiss passported scientist known as Albert Einstein. But first of all, we have Elizabeth Flux, who will be talking about William of Ockham, uh, the famous monk who gives his name to Ockham's Razor, a scientific principle we should all be well aware of. ways to explain Occam's razor. I'm going to go with the simplest. (laughs) So everyone who laughs understands that that was it. That was the definition. (laughs) But for everyone else, um, the idea is this. If there are two or more explanations for something, it's probably best to go with the most straightforward. So say you come across a dead body. There's someone standing over it with a knife saying, I did it. I did the murder. It's possible that, in fact, moments earlier, a homicidal werewolf just jumped out the window fled into the night after stabbing the victim, then paying off the passerby with a terminal illness, um, and the family to support to take the blame. But not everything can be an Agatha Christie novel. So to come to that particular conclusion, you need to make a whole lot of assumptions. That werewolves exist, that one in particular was in the room that night, that a deal occurred, that the passerby happened to be immediately amenable to being paid off. Um, but yeah. Somehow no fur was left at the scene. So Occam's razor takes the situation and shaves off the unnecessary and unlikely. It takes too many steps with too much uncertainty attached to get your werewolf scenario. So if the philosophical principle of Occam's razor is applied, the person doing the shouting about the stabbing is the murderer. So it's not an absolute. It's a probably. It's there to help guide the way. If suddenly video surfaces of the werewolf doing the thing, then the seesaw will flip the other way and Occam's razor will say that that is the most simple scenario. So it's the one with the window, the supernatural metamorphosis, and the money. So that was a whole lot of words to kind of explain the law of briefness. And to be honest, it's actually a whole lot more complicated than that. There's people who proposed anti-razors. There's criticisms that the theory um, is on things, but is in reality about explanations, which is not interchangeable. And there's just, in general, a whole lot of grumpiness that I personally think is a bit out of proportion, considering at the heart of it all, Occam's razor is just saying, look... I'm not going to say that this rule is always going to be right, but overall, let's just try and keep things simple and not overthink. So cue centuries of overthinking and nitpicking about language. So it's a rule of thumb. Let's not get bogged down arguing over whose thumb, whether it's the left one or the right one, if it has a whirl or an arch, if that impacts at all. But that being said, I'm not actually here to talk about Occam's razor. (laughs) I'm here to talk about the guy behind it, William of Occam. So here's the thing I love about the literature on him. One... 
that Wikipedia's Occam Razor article takes more time than necessary to explain that it's not a literal razor. <laughs> it's a metaphor. And I'd just like to say, excuse me, if the pictures are to be believed of this clean-faced man with a friar tuck going, thing going on, there had to be a literal Occam's razor floating around at some point. <laughs> the second thing I love is because he was born in the 13th century, a lot of the facts about him are caveated with maybe, probably, and likely, which means that in deciding what is and is not true about him, people probably had to apply his own theory at points because they have to fill in gaps between what they actually knew. So one source states this up front, saying they have to estimate dates by extrapolating from known dates of events later in his life. So they know where he was born, what he studied at the age of 23, and from there they just use geography and logic to figure out the likely places he studied and the timelines in between. But what facts there are paint a picture of an interesting guy. He was probably born in around 1285 in Ockham, England. So the town appeared in the Domesday Book in Domesday Book, 200 years before William was born, and its assets included at that time one church, one and a half hides, and according to Wikipedia again, woodland worth 60 hogs, <laughs> which I spent far too long trying to understand, alas, fruitlessly, so if anyone can explain that to me later, I'd probably like that. Um, so I know the last names weren't so much of a thing back then, and it was common to be like someone of a place. I still find it something to mull over that his most famous theory was technically named for him, but more from the place where he was from, because William's razor doesn't really have the same sort of gravitas. It sounds more like something you'd be fighting over in a sharehouse bathroom. <laughs> so Ockham the man joined the Franciscan Order of Monks quite young. How young, no one knows. Um, he also joined at a complex time. It was always a complex time, but this one in particular was complex because they were debating how poverty they should poverty as monks. So... His focus area, somewhat unsurprisingly, was logic. He went on to study theology at Oxford, where he gave lectures, had strong opinions, and as a result, was unpopular within the faculty. <laughs> he left without obtaining his master's. So Occam's work required a balance between his extreme rationality and his religious beliefs. Um, so he was a theologian-logician, which is an extremely complicated way to live your life. <laughs> he and his work had a lot of critics, even beyond Oxford. So by the time he was in his late 30s, which, well done, it was the 1300s, um, he had reached a point where he was asked to defend his views to his own order. And around the same time, because when you're in for an inch, in for a mile, um, someone said that he was a heretic and he was asked to defend his views um, to the papal court. Um, so he travelled over to France to answer to this as well, which must have been quite the year for him. So while he was there, he got involved in what can only be described as some real Game of Thrones shit, if Game of Thrones was written by someone who also writes fan fiction about doing your tax. <laughs> so the debate over how poverty should be poverty in the Franciscan order was still raging. Basically, and bear in mind this is somewhat of an oversimplification because there was a whole lot of things going on, the idea was this. Jesus and his apostles, it is argued, owned no property, collectively or individually. So they relied on the kindness of strangers. The Franciscan order believed this, imitated this, and argued to live in poverty for them is the right way to do things and show faith. It is hard to do this, though, even if you are hardcore devout. And it's not just about not buying things and not owning things, not having a dresser, not having too many coat hangers. Because keep in mind, these people are academics. They study. These monks, they, they watch peas breed and then talk about their children to come up with genetics. Um, they come up with philosophical theories. They spend their days picking apart logic and the meaning of reality. So 
That means that not owning things is actually a much more complicated situation than you might originally think. So what is ownership? It exists, even transiently. So once food has been donated to you, once you're eating it, doesn't that make it yours? No, apparently, because they found a loophole, um, which is to say everything actually belongs to the Pope. <laughs> the Pope, John XXII, and sidebar to add that this was the Pope who had apparently been the victim of an assassination attempt by a sorcery, um, decided that this forced poverty thing with the loophole where he owns everything was silly and not on, and he refused to accept ownership, which meant that technically the Franciscans now own things which they didn't want to do. So I was kind of with him on the silliness thing here, and then I saw some of his earlier official conversations about poverty. So in the lead-up to the big showdown, which is coming in France, a whole bunch of paperwork and bills were punted back and forth regarding poverty and the ideas behind it. So Michael of Cesena, a high up in the Franciscan order, was arguing for the strict poverty as an interpretation of Christ's teachings. Somehow this all became a big argument over whether believing that the apostles owning no property was at odds with the Catholic faith, and I have to read this quite carefully because it's all very, like, specific. Um, and in the end, it seems like it wasn't about, oh, isn't this silly, but in fact it was, oh, if they're right about the apostles, does that mean that the Catholic Church technically is not allowed to own anything? So in that way, a small technicality becomes a big controversy. So people were, surprisingly, called heretics over it, and eventually, at the same time that Ockham was in France to deal with his accusations of teaching heresy, Cezana, who presumably, if he had a razor, would have immediately given away because he's not allowed to own things, um, was summoned there too over his refusal to follow the Pope's orders. So it's worth mentioning that at this point that Ockham was never officially declared a heretic. I'm not sure if that's because his case was cut short or whatnot or whose power is within, but that aside, Cezana and the Pope had their huge disagreement. So Cezana went to Ockham and called upon his logic and rationality to look at the question and go about the apostles and ownership and to go over the Pope's past official statements um, to see what he could come up with. Ockham did this, and guess what? He concluded the Pope was a heretic. <laughs> and not just a heretic, a stubborn heretic, one that once he was presented with the fact that he was a heretic, kept on being heretical. So technically, according to the Pope laws, which I'm surprisingly unfamiliar with, um, this meant that he wasn't actually Pope anymore because he'd given it up because he's a heretic, so unconsciously forfeited it. But what can you really do with that information, or more specifically, opinion? Cezana, Ockham, and a few others then fled France and went into exile and found protection with the Holy Roman Emperor, who incidentally was also having a huge fight with the Pope. And the amount of the amount of fights that the Pope was managing to have at the same time was frankly quite impressive considering there was no phones or internet at this time. So a whole lot of things happened with Cezana, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, and a poor attempt at a replacement Pope. Thank you, Oxford commas. Um, but Ockham wasn't there for that. After fleeing France, he was excommunicated, um, but never officially called a heretic, so swings and roundabouts. He stayed in Munich for some reason and continued his work, which was both philosophical and political. Some of it was about the Pope and whether or not the Pope should have unlimited power. Spoilers, he didn't think he should. But um, Occam's razor is the thing he's most famous for. However, though it was never called that in his lifetime, there isn't a pinpoint in time when he first uttered the words. And the theory is argued to date back further with versions being attributed to Aristotle, Ptolemy, Durandus of St. Porcine, who was one of Occam's contemporaries studying the same things at the same places, etc., etc. Let's be fair, though. 
The simple answer is probably the best answer. It's probably something that tons of people came up with independently. It's just that none of them wrote it down or got in huge fights with the Pope. So the wording and translations also differ. There's plurality must never be posited without necessity. There's don't multiply entities beyond necessity. And for a third version and an exercise in meta-irony, more things should not be used than are necessary. <laughs> Occam died in Munich, and there are contradictory dates. One source says, without hesitation, that he died at night, either on April 9 or 10, in 1347, at roughly the age of 60. Another hedges their bet, saying that he's thought to have died in the Munich convent in 1349 during the Black Death, but maybe actually he died there two years earlier, who knows. Wikipedia doesn't come to the party at all. In fact, simply saying, William of Ockham fled to the school, meaning Oxford, which is wrong, and spent the rest of his life living with a group of friars who also did not like the large power that the church had, so I'll be correcting that when I go home tonight. Um, incidentally, Wikipedia's article on Ockham is both woefully and perhaps aptly short for the man who championed brevity. It's 143 words, and nine of those words are William of Ockham said three times. So the inconsistency in death dates could point to something bigger and more conspirational. No one seems to have been recorded as actually having seen him die. And surely a two-year discrepancy points to something sinister going on. Maybe he was kidnapped by aliens. Maybe he changed names and snuck back into England. Maybe he never existed in the first place. Maybe he was stabbed to death by a werewolf. But to believe that would mean making a lot of assumptions. So let's go with the simplest explanation and take that, and take that as the most likely that William of Ockham was a scholar, a champion of logic who prioritised pragmatism and rationality over personal comfort, and died in Munich around the age of 60. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
You are listening to Lost in Science. That was Elizabeth Flux talking about the namesake of Occam's Razor, the medieval monk William of Occam. And now on the show, we will be hearing from Edward Brelsford, who will be talking about the little-known German physicist Albert Einstein. possessed me to try to speak to a crowd of scientists and science enthusiasts about um, the most famous scientist and one of the most famous people that has ever lived. Uh, the person who was named by Time magazine as the person of the century. Uh, I'm certainly no expert on Einstein. A dirty secret is that I'm one, well, I was one subject short from a dual major in physics in my undergraduate degree. Um, so I have what I would consider to be an advanced layperson understanding of the physics that Einstein discovered. So it probably comes as, a, as a, a good thing to most of you tonight that I won't be diving deep into the details of the quantum theory or general relativity. Uh, neither am I a scholar about Einstein's personal life. Uh, I've read one of his biographies and I've spent the last week desperately listening to another, uh, which if you're interested in the topic, I can highly recommend as a quality alternative to the next 10 minutes. But I was asked to speak tonight about one of my science heroes, and as naff as it sounds, Einstein is that. And I also realized, looking back at the history of this show, that no one else had ever tried to speak about Einstein. Uh, cowards, a lot of them. Um, so I thought, I might as well take a shot, so here goes nothing. First and foremost, uh, we must at least doff our caps to Einstein's intellectual and technical brilliance. Uh, it's easy to get lost in the tsunami of invention and innovation and discovery that's washed over the world in the past 200 years, but it's worth remembering that uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity is considered by many who know about these things to be the greatest achievement of any single human mind in history. So there. Um, Wow, I mean, that's really something. What makes it so incredible? Uh, I'm not going to be diving into the details, as I said, but I am going to share one result of relativity, which I like to share every chance I get in social situations, so I wouldn't pass up this opportunity. Uh, and that fact is that time travel is possible. I I'll say it again. Time travel is possible. Yes. Thank you. That is the, yeah, that's the reaction that it deserves. It's incredible to me that this fact, which was discovered by Einstein more than 100 years ago, uh, still isn't known to the entire world. It's uh, incredible. Time travel is possible. You can go as far forward in time as you like, according to our current tried and tested best understanding of physics. 
It's uh, simple enough to do. It's not complicated. In fact, we have sent objects into the future. I mean, that blows my mind. I think it's really fantastic. So the next time you're sitting around a table and there's an awkward silence, try filling it with the sentence, did you know that time travel is possible? <laughs> it always goes down well, I can promise you. It's so cool. And you might be thinking, yeah, that kind of is cool, but it doesn't affect my day-to-day -day life. But to give Einstein his due, our day-to-day -day life would be unrecognizable without the physics that he'd discovered. One uh, example which I love is GPS. Uh, GPS wouldn't work without a solid understanding of time dilation because the clocks that are ticking away in the satellites which triangulate our position are running at a different rate to the ones on the ground. Uh, of course, we wouldn't even have our telephones if we didn't have a solid understanding of the semi semiconductor technology which the quantum theory gives us, so perhaps it's a bit moot to say that GPS wouldn't exist. But enough, enough about his work in physics. Uh, let's quit the technical details and wonder, is it possible to understand the quality of Einstein without uh, looking at these technical details? And even more importantly, what can we learn from him as a person? Uh, it's easy to imagine Einstein as an absent-minded philosopher, uh, a physicist, his head always in the clouds. But that would be very wrong. He was deeply involved in the social and cultural milieu of the world around him. He uh, had strong convictions on politics, uh, social equality and justice, and he spent his life fighting for them. He used his public position to push those ideas. But he didn't only play on the big stage. He was intrinsically part of his local community as well, and he had many close friends within the circles he occupied. In among all of this, it's hard to know how to take any meaning from it all, but perhaps we shouldn't search so hard for meaning in the random sequences and collections of events which make up any one life. So let's forget for a moment about the broad sweeps of history, and let's not try to understand Einstein here tonight by the facts or by the numbers or by the dates. Instead, let's just look at some little details to try to get some feeling of the color of him and the texture, just an impression, just a shadow of what he may have been like. I need a disclaimer here. Inevitably, I'm going to interpret the facts that I know through my own lens, so please forgive me for the speculation which follows. Firstly, I'm fascinated by the fact that when he was 15 years old, he renounced his German citizenship out of protest for the way the country was going. He saw the tendencies towards militarization and he didn't approve. And he also didn't want to serve in the military. Fair enough, I mean, I can identify with those feelings, but to renounce your citizenship, isn't, I mean, isn't that a little bit drastic? Imagine if a friend of yours came up to you tomorrow and said, I've renounced my Australian citizenship out of protest, protest to the government. Uh, okay, uh, sorry, what? I mean, what next? What happens next? Uh, in Einstein's case, he was lucky enough to be able to get his high school diploma in Switzerland, and he eventually obtained Swiss citizenship five years later. It's lucky for us as well. But I wonder what would have happened if he'd been stateless for five years as he was today. And these aren't just the actions of a rebellious 15-year-old. We see again and again throughout his life that Einstein held in very little regard the standard path that society asked him to tread. Next, I'd like to wonder for a moment what it was like to have Einstein as a friend or as a family member. Surely the day-to-day -day quality of a person is best judged by their friends and loved ones. 
Here we find a mixed bag full of contradictions uh, which are hard to reconcile. Einstein was married twice and he was regularly unfaithful to both of his wives. Uh, the two sons from his first marriage he treated quite poorly and was often, he often spoke of them cruelly or heartlessly. But yet, at the same time, he had many lifelong friendships and was by most accounts, almost all accounts, a kind and gentle person. Certainly he wasn't heartless. He spoke, as I've said, for he fought for many good causes, world peace, nuclear disarmament, and civil rights. And, I mean, he often stopped to speak to children on his walks. So maybe, and I'm speculating a lot here, you could imagine that while his, his intellectual intelligence was unparalleled, his emotional intelligence perhaps left something to be desired. If I had to paint a picture, I would imagine that maybe he was often awkward. In a social situation, perhaps more comfortable talking about big ideas, be they scientific, social, political, or moral. And perhaps the little things, uh, the things that touched on his personal life, he struggled with more. Maybe that's why he found being a good husband and a good father greater challenges. There's one final picture I'd like to paint, which is just a little tidbit which I love. There's a second-hand story told by a passenger on a transatlantic cruise um, who tells of seeing Einstein playing his violin with a group of strangers. And I love to imagine that moment. Somewhere on the seas between Paris and New York, you can imagine an awkward but friendly 35-year-old with a group of strangers with a violin tucked under his chin. Perhaps late at night when there aren't so many distractions, just the sound of the creak of the ship and the movement of the water. Einstein always said that he found the most joy in his violin, and so you could imagine him with his eyes closed, deeply lost in the music, with no distraction, and enjoying the movements of a world that seems very far away from us now. For me, what stands out about Einstein was that he was deeply a part of his world. Whether in large circles or small, he always got involved, and he never stepped back. He knew that difficult things took a long time, and he worked in small steps towards larger goals. He didn't believe that scientists had the right to separate their work from their morals. He took the time to know people around him and to understand the broader issues of the world stage where he had the privilege of playing a part. And he enjoyed solitude. Like all of us, he was flawed. He made mistakes in love, in work, and in friendships. If you had the chance to sit down next to him, perhaps you would, well, you would certainly learn plenty, but perhaps you would also see where there were some gaps. And his treatment of his wives and his sons, there's much to be desired. So if I am to probably foolishly try to draw any conclusion from this hodgepodge of ideas and wildly apocryphal stories that I've told here tonight, then it would be the obvious, but in my opinion, still very worthwhile reminder that we're all better than the worst thing we've ever done, and we're all worse than the best. And that's true for all of us, even the person of the century.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.